Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to our first off-season episode. Cody, it feels like we haven't spoken in about two or three months. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed the summer break that we're on now that the final. You remember the finals? Remember the NBA finals when they were going on between the Denver Nuggets and the Miami Heat? That's in the rear view. And now I, I realized this year it just hit me. Maybe I'm saying the most obvious thing ever to NBA fans. I realize the brilliance of the NBA calendar. Yes, I would like the season to be shorter and they could start it later in the year. But Cody, this stretch run at the end of the year, man, where we get the playoffs building up to the finals, crowning a champion. Then you go right into the draft, which we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about some historical draft stuff. Then you get free agency. We already got the trades coming in. Then you punctuate it with a little a little pallet wetter in Vegas. The uh, you know what's your, what's your appetite with an H, you know what's the appetite uh, um, gets you ready for the for the full offseason. It's really quite a stretch these couple months. Uh, the the fever pitch of interest. So I'm excited. I'm excited to talk about some draft stuff today. Yeah, you don't want to H-less wet your appetite. Because I feel like if you're really hungry, the more things you start like drinking, the less hungry you become. Until sometimes you're like too thirsty where you have to drink first before you get some good food down. Here's the brilliance of the NBA schedule, Ben. Is I feel like the NBA, I don't know other sports, so maybe other fandoms are kind of like this. But it feels like there's a lot of people that are like the X person, right? So, you know, the NBA Finals are great and we're all watching it. But there are those people out there that are like, I'm a draft guy. Right. And that's what they live for. Like they are prepared for the draft. They're crushing film after game four sort of thing. And then there's the people that's like the CBA people. And they're like sitting there during free agency like, oh, they're going to go over the second apron if they sign so and so. And then trades happen. like everyone has their avenue. And I think that's what's so cool about it is people really get into them. And then there's generalists who are just soaking it all in. And then there's us, and we're trying to talk about 1974 Milwaukee Bucks <laughs> content. Um, there was a trade this week. It already started all this fun. We had a trade. Is it official? Did it go through the Phoenix Suns acquiring Bradley Beal? Is that in the books? I'm, I assume. I, I feel like if you know, Shams or Woj tweet it, in my mind, it's official, but I guess that's not always the case because we saw, um, what was the famous one for OKC? Was was Tyson Chandler going to go to OKC? And then that was pulled back because of some some health stuff. So I guess we shouldn't like... What about DeAndre Jordan in the, in the compound uh, down in Houston coming back? Don't oh forget that God. one. When yeah. uh, Mark Cuban was driving around, <laughs> texting furiously, looking for... That was maybe the like best offseason thing that ever happened. The, this, uh, you know, when you think NBA, there's no drama... There's no soap opera-y kind of stuff taking place off the court. That's definitely not what this league has going on. Um, I, I, I don't have a lot of thoughts on this Beal trade yet because I just thought Phoenix was going to be better this year anyway with a year. Like, Kevin Durant played eight games with them. He played eight <laughs> games. And they were thin, and Monty Williams is on the way out the door, and now Monty Williams is left, and they have a new coach. So my expectation was that things are going to be reset anyway. Now you bring in Beal. It's a third high-level player for them. They're all, all three of these guys can play off ball. They shoot. They can pass a little bit, but they're, they're not. It's not their sort of bailiwick. They're not dribbling through the defense and diming everyone up. But yeah, it's off-season vocabulary, Cody. Okay. We're just, we're, I don't know. What, what do you want to call it? It's not their forte. 
Yeah, sure. I like four. I, whatever. You know, bust out the new words. It is the summer of learning and the sorest time. So please inform us all, Ben. So, yeah. I mean, I'm sure you have uh, many, many thoughts, as you did last year on the Rudy Gobert blockbuster. That was a, that was a fun conversation. But I, I just... I feel like I want to wait and see a little bit longer, but I also think the ceiling for the Suns, I mean, it's an obvious thing to say, but we've seen time and time again, a a player of Beal's quality get in these situations and go, oh my God, my life is so much easier for me. All of a sudden, my three-point shooting percentage goes up. All of a sudden, my defensive, you know, and that's the big question, like how good can he be defensively? But all of a sudden, the defense is a little bit better. You see better possessions. You see better effort. You see more focus. He's in a higher intensity uh, playoff environment for the first time in his career. So I do have some of those expectations and thoughts in my head, but I want to see for the Suns and their overall ceiling, I want to see where the rest of the roster shakes out. The conversations that I haven't been hearing about Beal um, are actually about the driving part of his offensive game. Because I feel like most conversations that are coming up about this trade are bringing up the fact that, like, Ben, did you know that Bradley Beal isn't the knockdown shooter that it seems like he might be? And I think that comes up a lot. I think according to your database on thinkingbasketball.net, he's shooting like 41% on wide-open threes over the last couple of seasons, which is like 67th percentile. We're talking about somebody, yeah, you can knock them down. You're not Clay Thompson out there. You're not Joe Harris out there, but you're hitting the wide-open threes. But I think the thing that I haven't heard talked about it a lot, is I think he's a pretty solid driver. Like, especially compared to guys like Booker and especially Durant, whose driving numbers per game we've been seeing fall precipitously year after year. Uh, I think Beal's volume of drives is uh, pretty solidly higher than even Booker's out there. And I think his finishing ability has at least been in the same ballpark as Booker's as well. And I think because of that, he opens up a few passing angles. There were a lot of times with the Wizards, and I watched a good amount of the Wizards earlier in the season. I kind of thought they were a sneaky, fun team. I think Bradley Beal's a sneaky, fun player to watch because of his off-ball move because of like the contorted shots he can make because he is looking to to create for his teammates so I think that's going to be an interesting aspect is like how is this creation by committee thing going to work because you have these three guys that you don't want to have the ball out of their hands because they're all great scorers and and uh, drivers and whatever else so do you necessarily want to have another point guard in there that's going to set the table for them or are you just going to kind of get a I don't know like a DeLon Wright defensive guy at the the other guard position and and then let these guys kind of create on their own in this sort of way. So I think that's really the main thing I'm looking at as we go into free agency and the regular season to see how they want to set up their offense that way. Yeah, so I think we're on the same page. We want to see Mm -hmm. what the heck they do to finish out the rest of the roster. Uh, And I think in time, when we let that breathe and get some perspective on that, We'll be able to, you know, by the time this, by the time the season gets going, when does the season get going? November feels like such a long time from now. End of October, we'll have a better idea of what they're going to do. You're making a quizzical face. I'm trying to. Th- when do they release the schedule? Is this something that happens in like August? I don't know when they release the schedule. I just basically what I do is I watch historical basketball all summer, and then the preseason starts, and I go, wow, look at these guys play basketball. They can shoot, and they can pass. Look at all the space on the floor. Have you guys ever seen so much space in your whole life? And then I turn on a regular season game, and uh, and then we just go. So I have no idea when that schedule comes out. Yeah, That's how I feel about the draft, too. Like I'm not disinterested in the draft on Thursday. Like Between you and me, Ben, I might not watch it, 
Because as far as I'm concerned, like these guys don't really exist until they're on an NBA court. And then they're sort of in my avenue. Then I can kind of look at them and be like, oh, cool. This is what people kind of thought they would be like. It's a bit of a disadvantage because then some people get excited and they're like, oh, I'm in Thompson. I didn't know could hit a pull up 35 footer. I don't know if he can shoot threes. We're going to find that out um, next season. But I don't know. None of these guys really exist until the NBA season starts. I think the best part of the draft to me is the fashion getting to see the mm. getting to see the dress up and the personalities of all the players whatever bling and accessories they come with I'm a big fan of plus it's also nice to see everyone have their dream you know their name called on draft night those are always very fun moments uh the, yeah yes yeah. yeah this is the dudes crying thing like dudes are just crying a lot that's the thing i would probably watch draft night for like unironically like i think it's cool to see all these dudes like super excited crying up there i think peak fashion though is probably like 2003 when you saw those guys in the the really big <laughs> oversized uh, future uniforms yeah super oversized suits um, I don't, I don't know, Ben, when, when did we make the change to like a lot more form fitting, like pants at this point are getting to the point where like your socks are clearly visible. And I grew up in a time when like, if your socks were visible, like you were either like going clamming or you just Steve didn't Urkel. know how to dress yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. When no, it's a trend. It ebbs. The, the history of fashion is interesting. It has these ebbing and flowing circular things. They come, bell bottoms are in, bell bottoms mm. are out, you know, fitted is in, fitted is out, fitted is back in, fitted is timeless. It's formless. It's the, it's the shape of the body. And now all of a sudden Bill Walton, could you imagine Bill Walton <laughs> get, talking about fashion? If you could get him worked up talking about fashion, that would be amazing. Um, what Cody, what, what are we doing today? We're talking about, the draft, you I have now I've completely lost my my train of thought. Well, we're sort of talking about the draft. We're talking about the draft, but we're not talking about this draft because if you want like real draft takes, I'm not the person to go. That's to another no. To. That's another thing. We're not doing we're not doing the analysis of the prospects in this draft, but we do want to talk about Victor Wembanyama and where he sizes up. And I've done a ton of ton of work on him over the last month and of course he's not playing in college or anything like that he he just finished up uh, the championship in his French league so we are going to talk about that but all this stuff about drafting one thing has become apparent to me I think the draft process has changed a ton in my lifetime I mean that's that's almost an absurdly obvious thing to say out loud when, when I hear it leave my lips like in the old days most players played four years in college and you had the NCAA. It was the place to go. You had guys like Hakeem Olajuwon flying over so he could go to the university of Houston from Africa. Uh, it was the league before the NBA. You didn't have the same kind of international distribution. You didn't have the quality in the other leagues that you've had in the last few decades that has popped up all over the world. And you also didn't have guys leaving early. That's the other big thing that changed. So uh, I remember Shaq as a sophomore, a lot of people saying he would be the number one pick. I think he would have been the number one pick as a sophomore. But so many players stayed for three or four years. Michael Jordan uh, played North Carolina for three years. Hakeem, all these, all these other guys. It was like, okay, three, three years, and then you're so good, you can leave early. 
That's how good you are. You can leave early. And then they, Shaq comes along in the early 90s, and there were a few guys that Sean Kemp and a few other guys that had taken Moses Malone had, had been these anomalies that took circuitous routes that basically skipped college and effectively went straight into the pros when they were like 19, but it just really wasn't done much. And then Shaq in 91 was a sophomore, and it was just like, wait a second, the guy weighs 290-something pounds. How does he move like this? Look at his wingspan. He's dunking on everyone. Uh, his team doesn't seem to be that good, but he makes them competitive. And he stayed. He stayed for his junior season, came out, and was the number one pick. By that point in time, the next year, you had the Fab Five. And there was a lot of talk about the Fab Five guys also leaving early as well. And Chris Webber turned out to be the one who broke the seal there. And he left after his sophomore year. And then over this slow progression over the next few years, you get to Kevin Garnett in 1995. And he's like, ah, I don't even need college. Just going, just going straight to the NBA. And I've said this before, but it's worth revisiting almost 30 years later. A lot of people thought that was nuts. A lot of people thought the Timberwolves were nuts for taking him with the fifth pick. And there was a lot of discussion about how a high school kid would not be able to survive in a professional environment overnight and how the size and the maturity and the strength of the players in the league and the 82-game grind would overwhelm him and all this stuff. And instead, the opposite happened. The floodgates opened. Uh, And I think those two things, the international talent pool, the distribution of players across the leagues because of that around the planet, and then guys coming in at 18, 19 years old, I think it's completely changed the scouting and drafting game in my mind. And uh, yeah, I've I've been rambling a lot, so I'm going to let you react to this, but this is going to lead us into ultimately trying to figure out where someone like Victor Wembanyama sits among the great prospects in NBA history. I want to talk about Shaq for just a second here, because what's interesting is if you you look up his comments about college, uh, I think this is an article from like 2013. So, you know, there's a chance that some of his opinions have changed since then. But at that time, he was actually uh, a strong uh, believer in the three and done rule. So he was somebody that you said stayed in college for three years. He actually supported it. Uh, I think that was right at the tail end of his career. He was probably retired for a couple of seasons. But this isn't a guy that was like, no, you need to get out of there right away. No, he was still somewhat of a supporter of it. Now, he does reference the fact that he understands people's financial situation and that might be a good reason for them to get out of college and go straight to the NBA. But I guess that leads me to a question, Ben, is do you recall conversations at that time or even earlier of national writers, whatever else, being like, why are these guys staying in college so long? Or was it just so ingrained in how it worked that it was just never questioned? They're like, yeah, of course they would stay this many years in college. It was totally ingrained. I don't remember a single person bringing that up. I'm sure there's a single person who brought it up at some point on a talk radio show or something that I didn't hear or don't remember. But to your point, the zeitgeist, let's, let's continue with our, our word of the day theme here, was just like, no, that is completely normal. And the thing that is abnormal is leaving earlier and earlier because it's challenging the status quo. I mean, keep in mind, as we sit here and talk, 20 some odd years ago, Jordan played for the Wizards. Shaq and Kobe were at their heyday. The NBA on NBC was still a thing. That's the same distance from now to then in the early 90s where we're talking about Shaq coming out to going back to when 
Walton, Bill Walton and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar were at UCLA and they couldn't even play as freshmen. So it actually was already shifting. It was like, that's how bad it was. It was like, you couldn't play in college as a freshman. Then you had to wait to be a sophomore to play on the varsity. Then you made your rounds on varsity and you could go to the NBA. So they had already moved the goalposts a little. And I think that's why I don't remember a single person ever saying, why is everyone staying so long in college? The guys that quickly started leaving after their sophomore year and then their freshman year were seen as more radicals. And I think each of those steps created new questions of like, what are you do? Are you sure you can leave already? Um, Garnett, who I think was just so influential on this front because of how successful he was almost overnight. He was an all-star in his second season. And that second season was the year uh, that Kobe Bryant came into the league and debuted. So he was there in 96. And then you had uh, Tracy McGrady and a few other players follow. And then the floodgates open. But no, Cody, I mean, it was just so normal that I think everyone accepted it. Okay. So let's let's set the ground rules for the greatest prospects that we're going to talk about. I'll kind of let you introduce it. I'll ask some questions because I'm interested in in how you determined it. Because even like you just said, the historical context changes the idea of how we think about some of these guys. So, uh, you know, I want to see if some guys are going to kind of be left off because of whatever rules we come up for ranking these guys. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get to the rules um, and sort of trying to size up these greatest prospects ever and where Wemby is in a second. But I think continuing with the idea of what's changed for me, one of the things I've been thinking about a lot over the last few years as I make these video profiles of players that come into the league, because like you said, neither of us really have time to watch. I don't watch college anymore. I'm not, with the exception of Wemby this season, I'm not watching Euro leagues and things like that. So we see them when they touch the NBA in summer league and then the preseason and the rookie year and so on and so on. And one thing that has become apparent to me is that whole age distribution dynamic, that's changed what it means to be a top pick. It's also changed where the talent comes from and how it develops. So one of the things we did this week in preparation for this show was look at the career value of players based on where they were selected in the draft. So um, we could use something like basketball references, VORP, everyone's favorite acronym, SOUP, value over replacement player. All that really means is it takes a box score stat like basketball references BPM, and it says, how long did you play and how long did you provide value for your team? Uh, A pretty good approximation here of what we're trying to do at a very large scale over like 50 or 60 years of drafting. And the takeaway, Cody, is if you look at a period like 1969, when Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was drafted, to the end of the 90s, that change that we just talked about, you see more value clumped up in the top picks. It's not enormous, but your number one pick will play a little bit longer and have a little bit more value. Number one picks are usually good, but your number three pick, your number five pick, The last 15 or 20 years, you get more spikes from the 
12th pick, the 15th pick, the 22nd pick. So there's a little more value distributed later in the draft. And this should be intuitive when we think of Nikola Jokic as the 41st pick and Draymond Green being a second round pick and uh, Giannis Antetokounmpo being the 15th pick and Kawhi Leonard being the 15th pick and on and on and on and on. So it's not a huge thing, but you do see some statistical changes in what I think the takeaway here is uncertainty. We have more uncertainty because players are coming in younger and because they're playing different competition. They're not all playing in the NCAAs. It's, it's not the same kind of playing field that we used to see. You know, it used to be like, well, I don't know. John, John Stockton went to this Gonzaga school. Is that, has anyone ever heard of that? Is the competition good? But now we get stuff like um, James Wiseman played like three games at Memphis uh, LaMelo Ball played a handful of games in Australia in the league they have there, which is a good league against professional grown men. You have Euro leagues. You have really good uh, leagues like all over the world, the Middle East. Um, Wemby just played in his French league. I was blown away by how many former NBA players are in that French league, possibly guys coming back into the NBA. So it's really good talent all over. And I think it's just created a ton of uncertainty, both at the top And even how you necessarily think about like, what does it mean to draft a guy as a project? What does it mean to draft a guy based on potential? If he's 19 years old, how good is he going to be at 23? What is he going to look like at 27? I mean, the the great offensive players of this generation, Steph Curry, James Harden, Nikola Jokic, stop me if I'm forgetting anyone. You could put Kawhi, Pete Kawhi in there. All these guys... It was not clear when they were drafted, even as they started playing in the league, Giannis Antetokounmpo. Like, it wasn't clear that by the time they hit their mid or late 20s, they were going to exert value in the modern game in these two or three specific ways. And that's going to warp the court. And I think that was actually a hard thing for people to accept with guys like Jokic or Curry especially. Like, well, his shooting... Wait, what do you mean he just shoots? (laughs) What do you mean he just shoots really well from everywhere? Yeah, okay. That sounds okay. But, I mean, what, can he get me like a has he pull up Jimbo on somebody's head from 16 feet? I mean, that's what I need to see because that's what I've seen for such a long time. So I think the game is changing. I think the drafting prospect is changing. And I think it influences how we see, you know, oh, what does it mean to be the next big thing like Victor Wembanyama? I want to clarify something you said. So you said like earlier – in the drafting days, like the late 60s, early 70s, or whatever else, you see a lot of this value clumping in the first couple of picks of the draft. Like, it seemed more consistent that maybe the first, second, third picks uh, were going to produce a player that had a lot more value throughout their career. Um, are you saying that now, or the last 15 years or so, that there's been more variance in those first couple of picks? Or are you saying that we have retained that sort of value in the first couple of picks while also seeing more spikes later on in the draft? Or do you just feel like after maybe the first pick, it's kind of becoming more distributed? It, it, it's a little more of the latter. Um, it's more like in the old days, you couldn't re- really necessarily expect as much from a 13th, a 22nd, a 27th pick. And by the time you get to the last decade or two, I think you can expect a lot more. And it's hard to do draft analysis on recent drafts because the players haven't hit their peak. They haven't matured and and made it through their entire career, right? But if you look at the recent drafts 
and you went through and you earmarked like the last five years all of the players who look like they could be top players. Um, I've actually done it from 2016 to 2020. I'll just read the draft positions to just to just to give you an idea of what I'm talking about. Um, 11th, 27th, first. That first pick in 2016 is Ben Simmons, so he could be tailing off. We don't know. 36th, 29th, third, seventh, second. 3rd, 13th, 14th, 22nd, 5th, 19th, and on and on and on and on. That's just the 2016-2017 draft. But there's a ton of high-level players recently coming from the teens, the 20s, and the 30s. And as they mature and develop, you realize, like, okay, this guy might not have a typical trajectory. Jalen Williams for Oklahoma City, if he continues to blossom and grow, um, is that going to be a typical looking star when we think of sizing up the check boxes come draft time? So you get into this whole thing where it's like, what does an archetype look like? How does a player fit into an archetype? And if I make my like checklist of what I want to see, is that just always mapping to the stars that were in the previous generation? But the reality is, as the game continues to change rapidly, they don't look like Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant anymore. They look like something that we have a hard time envisioning. So you think there's an aspect of just like the philosophy of team building has become a little bit more intelligent in terms of drafting stuff. So once you get down to the 15th or 16th picks or something like that, you start having a better idea of the kind of guy that you might be able to draft at that position. No, no, I don't think it's that. I think it's harder. I think it's harder to accurately scout and project because you're starting younger yep. and your scouting field isn't a one-to-one playing field anymore. So I think we're seeing the result of that. I actually think for the most part, now we can talk in a second about maybe where the philosophy misses the mark, but I think for the most part, today teams are smarter than ever about scouting. They have more information about scouting. They have more data. They probably have more film. Uh, they, They have longer experience or more history to how to figure out how to do their due diligence on what what am I looking for in a player's personality and interviewing and things like that. So I think overall, they, they probably do a better job than they ever have. But at the same time, it's much harder, right? Much, much harder because there's more uncertainty. And also, I do think philosophically, we could be, I say we, I don't do draft stuff, but it just seems like when I read it, are you getting stuck in thinking about the prior mold? Are you essentially overfitting to what you just saw? And when a new player comes along, you go, ah, if he doesn't check those boxes, if he doesn't remind me of this player, then I can't imagine him developing into a star. And so I'm, I'm going to call him a role player. Um, s- similarly, you could do the opposite. You could go, and we saw this with Draymond Green for years, right? After Draymond Green came into the league, everyone was the next Draymond Green if they were an undersized defender. Because you're going oh, wait a second, he does kind of have quick feet and play bigger than he is at 6'6 or 6'7. So yes, check, Draymond did that. Yes, check, Draymond did that. This guy could be the next Draymond. And so you overfit in that direction where you see the you see a very specific archetypical pathway. Is that the word, Cody, archetypical? Did I make I that like up? I like that. I love that. Yeah, so like you see that pathway and you fit it into that. I think that's where the... With the game changing today, the draft process is harder than ever. It's just really, really tricky to figure out 
who's going to be a star. And therefore, I guess my big takeaway from all of this, before we contextualize the great prospects, is how do you say with a certain degree of, of confidence, with certainty, oh, this top five guy, he's, he's a superstar. This guy's going to be a star. This guy's going to be a star. The average draft only has a couple stars. And yet what we always see, of course, is selling hopium, where like every draft preview has like 12, 12 all-stars of this draft. The 17 players who could be all-stars for your team in the near future. It's just, it's just very unlikely. It's, it's only a few players are going to do it. And I think it's harder than ever to see those players. And I want to stick on this point of draft comps because I do think that's one of those things that's like not even conscious to a certain point because every draft person wants to hit a home run with their innovative pick. Like they want to get the next guy that's going to push the league forward and meet the league where it is at that time because the league right now, let's say a player is, you know, 20 years old and they're being drafted when they're 30 years old, which potentially could be their prime depending on the kind of player it is you have no idea what the league is going to look like you don't know how it changes right the league doesn't look like how it looked 10 years ago which didn't look like how it looked 10 years before that but it's scary drafting an innovator because for every hit there's however many that don't hit at all like what are the chances that someone like Draymond Green gets a chance to start with the David Lee injury Steve Kerr right was it Steve Kerr that ended up starting him that wasn't part of the Mark Jackson era at all was it I can't, I can't remember this off the top of my head. Yeah. But Draymond Green gets the chance to showcase what he's able to do. And then all of a sudden, every player that's like a little bit smaller was able to run a little delay action in college was like, this guy's the next Draymond Green. And you don't want to do that. But, like, you just have the vocabulary for what these players are like. And I think we're seeing that with, like, oh, I've seen it with Bam Adebayo already. It's like, oh, this big switchable guy that can defend all kinds of positions, he's going to be the next Bam Adebayo. It's like, well, there's a little bit more that goes into it than just doing that. And I know it's like this postmodern drafting thing where it's like all drafting you do is built on everything else that's drafted before. So it's hard to, like, step outside of that box, look to the league, see how it's changing, and be like, this is where I think the league is going to be, and I think that this player has the skill set set to lead us to that next part of it so there's just a lot of galaxy brain types of ways that you can actually approach the draft and i think that's what makes this game of 5d chess so difficult yeah i i think uh that's what also makes it hard for me to talk about victor and say he's one of the best prospects ever or maybe any any modern player is one of the best prospects ever because there's just that uncertainty that we keep alluding to, right? Like, Weminyama, to me, right now, has an incredibly high floor as a defender. I mean, next week, you could put him on an NBA floor, and as as he got up to speed with the scheme and all that stuff, like, his, his tools and his instincts defensively are extraordinary. So you could, very early in his career, see massive defensive impact without having to strain or squint or imagine anything changing too much. But the offensive side of the ball... Uh, is a much bigger question mark and creates a much wider range of outcomes to me. And so with each player that comes in like that, if you have a wide range of outcomes, let's take Scoot Henderson, who may go second or third in this draft, depending on reports, uh, before uh, he was you know, considered the other great prospect of this draft. Excuse me, of this draft. Um, but he's small. He's like 6'2 and change barefoot maybe, and the history of small players at that size having elite impact, 
Like it's it's different if we talk about making an all-star team, right, Cody? I mean, we just mentioned Bradley Beal. He's made a couple all-star teams. That's a totally different bar than being a top 10 or top 8 player, the clear-cut best player on a championship team that's easy to build around. And that even is a different bar when we talk about all-time prospects of like, no, this guy's winning multiple MVPs. Because I would say Jason Tatum is in that second tier we just talked about. But probably at no point when he was a prospect, and I don't think at any point in his career, do even the most sort of uh, excited Jason Tatum fans go, no, yo, no, 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 Tatum's winning like three or four MVPs. You guys just wait. That's a different level of player and of prospect. So I think that wider range of uncertainty, you think about Scoot and his size, just to, be, just to get up there at that size, you have to do certain things that are extraordinary. And it's not to say that he can't do that, but it's almost more like, in my mind, he's going to do it in a way that we haven't seen. Because we know, we know he's not going to shoot 48% on deep threes when he's open like Steph Curry. He's not going to run around off ball and carve you up. So if he were to achieve that level of success in the league at his height, he would almost have to do it in a new-ish way. And I think so many of the great players in history that are like that end up doing that and it's not always the easiest thing to foresee especially in the last like decade or 15 years or so and i think that's going to be something we're going to see in just a few minutes here when we talk about uh the best prospects of all time but we talked about it in the playoffs as well being very large is very helpful in the nba right especially like when you're a point guard around six two and i know he's a yoked dude like i think i think scoot is at least going to make our all-squat team at some point. If we make an all-bench press team, an all-military press team, he'll probably be on some of those uh, too as well. But when you're 6'2", um, like you just said, it's tough to have that much of an impact because like we talked about a lot, and I think during the uh, Top 40 GOAT series, you just gain some natural impact if you have good defensive instincts and you're enormous, right? So already, like, the gap that Scoot would have to make up against somebody like Wembenyama, who's, like you said, is going to have some kind of solid defensive impact because, what, he's he's 7'9", 7'10", 8'3". I have no idea how tall he is. He grows every time I see him. Wemby? Yeah, he's he's he said he's seven three barefoot no. about no. seven months ago. Um, whether he's actually taller than that or whether that's a conversion because they do it in centimeters and then you convert mm-hmm. over. Is he seven three and a half barefoot? I don't know. But for those not familiar with barefoot heights, like Kristaps Porzingis is about seven one barefoot. Rudy Gobert is about seven feet. I think he measured a little over seven feet barefoot Hmm. so that's why when you see Wemby next to these guys he's like three or four inches taller than him and you're and you're like what do you mean he's seven three no in shoes he's like seven five yeah yeah he's he's a good seven five in shoes keep keep going so I think that's what's interesting about Wemby in this conversation is it's very easy to like you say imagine the high floor it's easy to imagine he's going to come in and have like Probably the best impact right out the gate of anyone in this rookie class. But then, like you said, to imagine 10 years down the line, is he actually going to progress and add the offensive game he needs to complement that defensive game? And is that defensive game actually going to hit like defensive player of the year uh, caliber, whereas his offense is like, I I don't even know, like an all-star level offensive player? Because that's that's what we're talking about in terms of like hitting an all-time level player. Yeah, I think think with him, the package is the most enticing part. It's the most fun part. But again, it's fundamentally different. We're going to have a a video on the YouTube channel about this coming out shortly, depending on when you listen to this show, uh, depending on when we release this show, given our our summer habits already. But like to stick with Wemby, 
if he hits on everything, you could be talking about a GOAT-level defender, one of the best defenders of the 21st century, and then an all-star or better, like a centerpiece championship player. That's the dream. That's the vision. That's, oh, he makes, he's, makes these threes, and he's unstoppable, and he can ball handle, and he can go in the post, and he can play pick and roll. He can play pick and roll with the ball. He can play pick and roll without the ball. I mean, there's already a guy in the league for Denver that does all this at a, at a maybe higher level than, than Wemby could ever dream of reaching on offense. But if he got 70% of the way there, and he had the, the all-time level defense, he'd be the best player ever. I think that's the idea. But that's a different thing than some of the older prospects that we saw where it was much neater. It was in a, a path that was more outlined. So let's go back in time. Mm-hmm. Um, I was trying to put together who I thought the best draft prospects were based on the excitement at the time, based on what was known about the game, based on what was known about the player, and especially based on how people were talking about them. So I had, just to put this in perspective, every one of these players, except one, is a big man. Hmm. Most of the great, like, next big thing that comes comes down the pike is a big thing. For, for the history of basketball, size matters and it's almost as if the big men, I don't know if it's because it's rare to have someone that tall who's also good and skilled and just like you watch them play and you're like, oh, he's really, he dominates wherever he goes and plays basketball. But those are the players that excited people. And of course, the classic example is 1984. Hakeem Olajuwon gets picked over Michael Jordan. And really, no one has ever complained about that very much. Uh, Hakeem himself, one of the great players ever. But even at the time, there were some people, Bob Knight famously saying that Michael Jordan was the best player he'd ever seen, period, before he ever played in the NBA, which is the greatest calling of shots of all time. You know, like the receipt folks should just be, there should be a Twitter account just every day. Bob, Bob Knight's receipt on, uh, <laughs> on calling his shot on Michael Jordan. But it puts into perspective the gap between what gets people really, really excited about all-time prospects and potential and size. Because even uh, like going through it, we were trying to look at number one picks. So that was the parameter that we're going to use for this exercise to finish the show here. Number one picks. Only look at the number one picks. Who is the most hyped, most sort of excited highest basketball ceiling based on the scouting reports, based on the articles. For me, I only lived through half of these guys. The other guys I'm judging based on documentaries and going and reading the articles in newspapers and Sports Illustrated. Who was it? Well, Magic Johnson, he was very, you know, he had the national championship game with Bird. People were excited about him, but it wasn't the same thing. They weren't like, Magic Johnson is going to completely change basketball. He was a Cody. The funny part is he was a six eight point guard, and it's like, well, does he does he play point guard? Can you be a six eight point guard? Is it really cool that he's a six eight point guard? Maybe he's not a point guard. The Lakers played him at kind of like a hybrid position early in his career because they already had a point guard in Norm Nixon. So he didn't sort of uh, bang the drum of of just unbridled excitement right away. Decades earlier, you had Oscar Robertson and uh, Jerry West come into the league, I think they were highly touted. You had players like this that were really, people were like, ah, these are the best players, they're awesome. But it wasn't the same as the big men. 
So Wilt Chamberlain, for instance, his arrival in the just his presence playing at Kansas in 1957, losing in the national championship game, then going and playing professionally with the Harlem Globetrotters, then finally getting to the NBA. Like, that was the first slam dunk. Whoever gets this guy, it's a difference maker. And, of course, he was a, he was a center, seven foot one, and I, I had him third in my board. Third yeah, highest third. prospect of all time. Yeah, third. I had him third. Okay. So yeah. let, me, let me clarify something. Is this an award, like the best prospect of all time, is this actually just an award of public opinion? Like, does it actually not matter how good they are? Which, of course, is an absurd notion. Like, uh, the the public wouldn't be excited about someone if they weren't absurdly good, right? But does it actually matter how good they are? Or are you just paying attention to, like, what the hype was about that player prior to being drafted to the NBA? I'm doing the hype based on uh, the way people talked about the game, sprinkled in with a little... It's impossible to do, especially the stuff before I was born, uh, to really to really go back and have my own personal notes of like how I perceive these prospects. But I'm trying to do that sprinkled in with some basketball knowledge, right? So just the idea of what did Wilt do at Kansas? What was his competition? Why were people excited? Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes total sense. So, so, so he's I ended, third, okay. Yeah, so so this is just a rough, it's a rough list, but I just want to kind of put this concept in perspective as we compare it to the best prospects of today. And that doesn't mean just Wemby, it could even mean the best prospects of the last few years because I just think it's so different, Cody. I I don't think you can have the best prospect ever anymore today. Hmm. I think it's much harder to do that. Obviously, if someone comes along and they look like Victor Wembanyama and they move like Michael Jordan and they shoot like Steph Curry at 18, forget it. We can just shut it down. We can. We, obviously, my statement doesn't apply. But I think the general idea of saying like this player has the highest ceiling, the highest median outcome, and the highest floor. I think the players of yesteryear were all higher than almost any prospect we could get today. And we've had a couple super prospects recently. And for the most part, I don't think their floor, median outcome, and ceiling on any average NBA situation were as high as these old guys we're going to talk about. So, okay, yeah, jump so, in there. Okay, yeah. so are you are you are you roping in what we know about their rookie season as well too? Then, like, do they actually have to perform as a rookie to become an all-time prospect for you? No, no, I'm okay. trying not to, but it's 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 very difficult to differentiate because you get to see their career. Right. But I, I do think there I do think there's enough out there and you'll see it. You'll see some names in a second that didn't necessarily work out. I do think there's enough out there to contextualize how excited people were, how good they were in most cases in college before coming into the league and the state like the state of the league and their basketball tools that map up to those things. And to your last point, most of these guys were really good as rookies because of everything we've talked about today. Whereas I think expecting any rookie in the league, who's the best rookie in the last decade? Best rookie in the last decade. Um, man, off the top of my head. I don't even know off the top of my head. Is it Anthony Davis? Would it be him? Is it, would it be Zion? Zion only I, played like 30 games. I don't know. Um, who's, the, who's the last rookie to make an all-star team? How about that to make my point? I don't know if I know that off the top of my head. I would. I don't know it off the top of my head either. I would guess it's Tim Duncan, which wow. was ninety eight. 
Yeah. Right? It's, it's very this is terrible podcasting with No, this like is fantastic podcasting. Everyone everyone can uh, fact check us. But like the point is it's very hard to come in at that level. In the old days, players could come in and make the all-star team as a rookie, and sometimes they won the MVP of the league as a rookie. And I think that more than anything maybe I can say today emphasizes the difference between how good someone already was and what their shell of a player was when they came into the NBA in older eras compared to what someone is going to come into the NBA as today. I'm going to push back on something you said just a little bit here. Excellent. Is it about the All-Star? No. Who, who was no, the last it, rookie to make an All-Star team? It's driving me crazy. It's it's actually about your uh, your take about it maybe not being possible to be an all-time prospect nowadays because I actually think this is more fertile ground for that to be the case because of the 24-hour news cycle, because the sports centification of sports, because of Twitter and the fact that you can hype people up. Like, I have students coming to me and telling me things like, Victor Wimanyama is the best uh, prospect of all time. And when I have, like, 14-year-olds parroting these sort of talking points, I feel like that means it seeped into the conversation enough that all of a sudden, because of the public uh, perception, because of the way that we're able to disseminate information uh, as quickly as we do, it might even be easier to become an all-time prospect because in my mind, somebody that didn't go through and do this work before, you know, listening to you today, you know, it sounds very reasonable to think that Victor Wembanyama is either the best or one of the best prospects of all time just because of the conversations that have been constantly had about him for the last year. So you're, you're pushing back on the public opinion side of it? I'm pushing back on the idea that like you can't have an all-time prospect nowadays because I actually think it's easier to be an all-time prospect right now because of the constant conversations we have about prospects. Well, I'm not saying you can't. I actually think he's one of the better prospects ever. I'm just saying when you get to the top of the list of the best prospects ever, uh, I think it's there's just way more uncertainty. So unless you're just going to say the less you know, the better the prospect, which feels backwards to me. It's like saying, here's a 12-year-old. He could be he could be twice as good as Michael Jordan one day. That, to me, doesn't count. It's like, how good are they when they're entering the league? What are their skills? Um, what, do we, what is a reasonable expectation based on what we know about them and what we're talking about them? That's okay. how I would define a prospect. Is that, does that okay. jive? I think that makes I think that makes a lot of sense. I was taking the angle that like the prospect is created by the people as opposed to the player uh, themselves. No, I th- I think it's I think it's a lot about the player and how they play and the state of the league. But I'm not just talking about uh, a public forum or something. When we when we talk about the perception of these prospects, we're listening to scouts, executives, coaches, and the people covering the league in the past who get paid or commissioned to write these articles and just reacting like I remember Shaq as we said earlier in the episode I remember when Shaq was coming out of LSU um, I mean I don't think there was any doubt I don't think many people questioned whether his physicality would immediately translate into the NBA I don't think there was any question and his hype his hype was insane the NBA on NBC at the beginning of that year, the 92-93 season, they started running an ad for when they would start their Sunday, Saturday, Sunday afternoon games in January when the football season ended. They started running the ad like a month and a half earlier when the basketball season started. And it was this 
like a film trailer, Cody. It was like uh, Planet uh, 2001 Space Odyssey or something with the, with the big music and, and it would say like seven foot one, 308 pounds, 8.6% body fat coming January, blah, 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 blah. Uh, I don't think there was any doubt that he was going to be good. I think the question is, how good was he going to be? Can you play for a long time? What's the ceiling, et cetera, et cetera. So when I sketched out my list... I had Ralph Sampson sixth. Okay. And how hard is it? That was before my time. So how hard is it to differentiate and go, no, no, no. If I was alive, Ralph Sampson would have been number one. He was three-time player of the year. He was seven foot. Now, tricky part with Ralph Sampson, he was listed at seven four, but he's really like seven two. He's not too much taller than the other giant centers when you see him lined up in pictures and things like that. Yao Ming, another all-time great prospect. I mean, Yao Ming, clearly taller than him when you line up the great Houston Rockets centers of all time and for photo ops and things like that. So Samson was a guy who had incredible hype because of how he could move. He's in the Kareem Wemby, extremely tall, very nimble, athletic. And it was like, oh my God, can Ralph Sampson like play point guard? Can he dribble the ball? Um, look, at how, look at how dominant he is defensively. And he was a guy who I think a lot of people consider a disappointment based on how his career played out. But again, to the point of everything I'm saying here, he was a disappointment, but he was an all-star. <laughs> like they made the finals. Ralph Sampson was an all-star as a rookie. He averaged 21 points, 11 rebounds, and two and a half blocks per game as a rookie. He made the all-star team in the first four years of his career before injuries took over and the Rockets... Now, with retrospective knowledge, we know it's more probably about Olajuwon, but they made the Rockets in 1986 with the Twin Towers. They could play Twin Towers because those guys were mobile. So that's a failure, I think, in many people's eyes. And that's what I'm saying about how much has changed with the bar do, do, do you buy that that makes that makes a lot of sense i like the fact that that ends up being a failure i have your all-star answer for you now uh there have been two rookie all-stars since tim duncan actually don't, the first I don't one like this give me i don't like this do, do you want to try and guess or you want me to give them to you i can't even i can't even uh no you're gonna have to give them to me who in rookie. 2003 yao ming oh yeah i just said yeah yeah was a rookie all-star but he and was the, voted he was voted in i wonder Still an all-star. Yeah. Still an all-star. Okay. The other one, Ben, it's a little... I think it's fair. This was the whole debate between Donovan Mitchell and Ben Simmons. I was going to say, is it Ben Simmons? It isn't, but it's someone in the same situation. Blake Griffin, who sat out his first year and his second year. He was still a rookie, though. It's the Ben Simmons (laughs) rookie conversation. Blake Griffin was the last rookie in 2011 to make an all-star team. Yeah, that I, that wouldn't count in my head. And the Yao Ming one, um, at least, I mean, his 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 popularity vote at that point in time was was incredible. Um, anyway, okay, so here to me, I was like, where where could you put Wemby? Could you put Wemby ahead of Tim Duncan? And I've got some names ahead of Tim Duncan: Hakeem Olajuwon, David Robinson. I want to get to the top five or six just to to put some of these in perspective, um, but like. When Duncan came out, Cody, he was a senior. He played four years at Wake Forest. You had already seen him with the post and the fade and the power and the handle. And then defensively, you knew what he could do. Uh, Immediate, immediate impact in the league. So it's one of those things where he didn't even have to grow that much 
to be very good because at 21, 22, you're already close in many cases to sort of the really fat, meaty part of your prime aging curve, right? The difference between 18 and 22 is enormous. But if you're not already really good at 22 or 23, forget about it. And the the thing that's kind of like cheating with these past prospects is they were coming in sometimes at 22 years old. So you already knew how good they were. Um, so would do I think as a prospect, he's better than Tim Duncan? I think he has a higher ceiling. I think he has better potential. But I think the ceiling is unlikely because of his age, because of the changes in the game. Um, I think it's also unlikely because Yes, you can improve your shot. I do think he'll improve his shot. I do think that's a huge swing skill for him, as I've talked about in these videos that I've done on him. Um, but the difference, I mean, 35% three-point shooting, 40%, it's just a massive difference between being an okay shooter, a good shooter, a great shooter. So I think there's a ton of uncertainty there. You look at some of the other guys I sketched out here, like, Hakeem Olajuwon, David Robinson. We talked about Ralph Sampson. Here's another one, Patrick Ewing. Hmm. Patrick Ewing, I think of, of the big men in the 80s, like maybe he, maybe outside of Sampson, he was the one people were most excited about. And he was only two years after Sampson, but you have Hoya Paranoia, total dominance on the national stage, like multiple appearance, appearances in the national championship game, blocking shots into the stands left and right and you're going well he's got it he can he moves like bill russell and he could be this incredible defender and he's got the hook shot and a little post game gets to gets to new york ends up developing that mid-range shot but in ewing's case like hall of famer yeah multi-time all-star yeah backbone of a franchise yeah but maybe some knee issues the passing was never there. Didn't quite have the same dominant offensive presence. A very, very good or great defender, but not like an all-time defender. And so again, it's hard to go back and realize like how hyped up people were for Patrick Ewing. And did he hit that hype? No, but he's a Hall of Famer. Like a slam dunk Hall of Famer. And I think, again, you play multiple years in college, that, that changes things. I feel like if you're being hyped up in terms of like this guy moves like Bill Walt, Bill, Walt, Bill, Bill, Bill Russell, Russell yeah. um, that falls you into this conversation. Like you are all of a sudden in whatever top tier you're setting up here. Yeah, well, uh, I'm surprised there's a name you haven't mentioned. I think, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, there's, there's a couple. There's the one guy that I'm sure people know I'm going to mention, but uh, I don't. I don't think Greg Oden's going to going to fully make the conversation. But <laughs> I, I am partial to Greg Oden. Um, he was what great. What about LeBron James, Ben? That's the name. I think he's probably the best prospect of the 21st century, LeBron. Mm -hmm. um, this is where the list exercise got hard for me because for LeBron, the thing that I think was so convincing about him, even though he was a high schooler, was he had the size and he had the body physically. So you weren't too concerned about like him going to the next level and having to like, can he put on 30 pounds? Can he? No, he like was playing with NBA players since he was like 15 or 16 years old and playing well against them. But the thing with LeBron that made him such a great prospect, he's not seven foot two, he's not seven feet tall. He is big, but it was, he just played the game. 
his feel for the game. They, they put those high school games of his on ESPN, and the first thing that everyone had their jaw drop over was not necessarily the windmill dunk in transition. It's like the no-look passes in transition, the behind the back, just the little, uh, even one of his dunks, I think on that first game they televised on ESPN, which at the time was completely unprecedented. Just like, we're just going to put a high school game on national TV in primetime. Might have been against Carmelo Anthony's team. I can't remember the first one. But LeBron goes to come off a screen at the top of the key. Bam! Cuts back door and catches a lob for a layup or a dunk. And that feel of playing basketball was already there, very much in the same way that it made Magic such a great uh, player and and prospect and then his career with the Lakers. So people already had that in their head. They were like looking at him and they're like, he's he's like Magic, but also is he kind of like Jordan? We can't figure it out. He's big and he knows how to play. And obviously when he stepped foot in the league, he, he was good right away. So I, I think LeBron to me is probably the best prospect I've seen in the 21st century using the uh, criteria we've talked about today with like public opinion and all that. But I still think when you look at the the all-time best, if I had, if I had to pick, I, I had LeBron fourth or fifth here with Shaq in my little list. Hmm. I think I got to go Wilt third, Bill Walton second. And that's another one where, you know, the failure, his injuries, and it just never lined up. But the way people talked about Bill Walton and what he was able to do at UCLA, 88 in a row, 21 to 22 in the national championship game, it reminds me a little of Wemby in that you could look at Walton in 1974 if, if, if basketball Twitter existed in 1974, and you would get people going, okay, he has the potential to be the best defender I've ever seen, and on offense, the passing, unbelievable. The post game, the hook shot, the size, the offensive rebounding, the feel, the cutting, lob finisher, little little fade away in the post. And of course, back then you didn't need like a 25 foot pull up jumper. So you were good. You had, you had crossed your T's and dotted your I's and Bill Walton, the, the, the player I just described could be the best player ever. And he had already, he was old. He had already, he was, it was old. He had played many seasons in college. He had already established it. Um, I think it's him. And then to me, the best prospect I've ever seen, and I don't think we'll ever top it is Kareem Abdul-Jabbar because he was like, clearly, I don't know what number to put on this, clearly one of the best NBA players in the world while he was at UCLA. I've struggled with this over the years in my head. Was he a top five player, a top 10 player, a top 20 player? I don't know what it is, but that's how much things have changed. People were watching him, and you can go back and watch whatever footage you can get your hands on and see his debut as a rookie that's available now uh, against Detroit in 1969. You're just like, you could take this college kid, drop him on an NBA floor without any development, and he will be better than almost every player in the world, no questions asked. I don't think, I don't think we'll be able to get to that again unless we truly see a freakish unicorn. I think you also have the, uh, the story. Like you were saying before, when you were a freshman in college, you didn't make the varsity team. 
right? You weren't playing on the big stage. And there's the stories of Kareem taking the freshman team and beating UCLA's varsity team out there. And like, those are the stories that were coming out. When you have that kind of player, there's like the the image. And when you think about athleticism, like Wembenyama is very nimble for his size, but there's the block where Kareem is basically like, catching the ball in the air. It's a black and white uh, image. His head is near the rim, swatting this way. And you're like, in the late 60s, like a dude was moving around at this height and and doing this and has the hook shot down. Like, yeah, I think the athleticism part of it too, along with just the freakish size he has, that hook shot, the ability for him to dominate in college, the stories, I think that whole narrative arc really adds to it. It seems like you're really excited to add something about uh, Kareem's time at UCLA. You, you, you left out the best part of that story, which is that the, the varsity team was the national championship team. They weren't just a regular varsity team. They had won the national championship. And he goes and he takes the freshman team and he has some huge game. I don't remember what his stat line was when they when they ran that game intramurally at UCLA. But um, that's how good he was when he was 18 or 19 as a freshman. He only got better. And then by the time he went into the draft, it was just... It's so weird looking back and going... What what the you asked the question earlier, like why weren't you in the NBA? You were you were so clearly better than almost everyone in the NBA, even when you were at college. I just don't think we'll ever match anything like that for that time where the game was played in the paint and it was a big man's game and you didn't get stretched defensively, so your your rim protection impact was potentially enormous. I just, that to me is the best sort of slam dunk, high floor, high median outcome, high median outcome, high ceiling um, prospect ever. And he went on to win six, six MVPs. And again, does the history of things change stuff in terms of doing this kind of exercise where you, you could like, oh, Ralph Sampson also would have been the best this and he didn't pan out. I don't know. I don't know if we can fully disentangle ourselves from what actually happened knowing their NBA careers. But I think when you stack up that prospect degree to me, uh, we just have more questions today. And I think that's the nature. I think it's the nature of the game. And it, and it adds more uncertainty. And so if you have the number one pick, it might give you a little angst, right? It might give you a little agita. But like, if, if you are um, a fan of the league, I think... It's super exciting to me to see the 15th pick, the 30th pick, the 41st pick just come along and blossom and, and go in a totally different direction. You know, Walker Kessler last year, just like, oh, I'm, I'm one of the best rookies in the league right away. Like, I love that kind of stuff. So I'm really looking forward to this. But um, yeah, you just you, you had something to say. Just to just to play the part of the summarizer here. I, I was trying to make the list as you were going, but you threw out a lot of names here. We have Kareem. And number one for you, for the best prospect of all time. I think I got Walton down for second, which, you know, I'm a little nervous about the UCLA bias right now. A little West Coast um, blinders on right now. I want to see a little bit of Big Ten representation, but whatever. I'll let, I'll let, it, I'll let it slip this time. We have Wilt third. I think you said Ralph Sampson sixth. Uh, do you want to solidify anyone for four and five here? Did I did I miss where you, you put did? I was saying five? Shaq and LeBron. I was sketching this out. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, I was saying okay. Shaq and LeBron. Um, and I think LeBron to me is the, as I said, the best prospect of the 21st century. Other recent guys maybe worth mentioning before we get out of here. Anthony Davis, 
Zion Williamson and Luka Doncic was disqualified from this because he wasn't a number one pick, which maybe maybe reinforces my point even more that you didn't just have these clear cut like boundaries that you used to have. I thought Luka was a slam dunk number one pick. I thought he was one of the best prospects I've seen. I don't know where I'd put him on this list, but you know, it'd be in this next group. I think Wemby and Anthony Davis and some of these guys could go in this next group with some of the other all-time great players from from yesteryear. So it's not to say that we don't have our share of really exciting, like super high ceiling prospects come into the league. I think we've had them in players like Anthony Davis, Zion, Luca. LeBron, um, even Greg Oden, Greg Oden in 2007, Oden and Durant. I love that combination of Oden and Durant and what both of them could offer uh, and, and their ceiling that they could offer. But like, how is Luca third? What? Well, the I think the answer is he was 18 and he played in Europe. And somehow at that point in time, there were people who didn't make the connection that Europe was much, much better than the NCAAs. Um, and he, and he goes to third and I, I mean, technically more like didn't the Hawks trade out of the pick. So a lot of teams did not take him first, even though I think going back to what I said about LeBron, he was a guy with the size and feel combination to look like this is going to be a surefire, really, really good or potentially great NBA player. And even, even Luca took, you know, till the second year to really start popping. It's, it's hard to come in as a rookie now and be really good. Yeah. It's really hard to come in as a not big man and dominate to that level. We talked about like the best young seasons of all time, and I think most of those young seasons are generally big man because they have the higher defensive floor. Uh, I think what I, I was almost having a hard time conceptualizing, it's such a basic distinction, maybe in retrospect, but like most hyped versus best prospect because in my mind and maybe it's because i just grew up in the mania of it maybe it was more of a monoculture it wasn't as easy to like have those kind of defending opinions but it feels like lebron might have been the most hyped prospect of all time because like you said the espn games showing the chosen one on sports illustrated the way that he was just being hailed as the next michael jordan even though like during games people were probably comparing him to magic johnson in high school a little bit more than michael jordan but uh i think maybe that's the point i was trying to get at when we had that moment a few minutes ago because i think maybe right now is the time you could be the most hyped and it feels like Wembenyama might be a little bit higher if we were just talking about that but i feel like lebron was maybe the most hyped uh, prospect of all time. Yeah, I, I think the older guys didn't have the same media machine and certainly the social media machine. So I agree with that. In in my lifetime, LeBron, the, the hype and the expectations were insane. The fact that he lived up to them or exceeded them are taken for granted, I think, by a lot of people because they were really, really hot. Hey, there's a combination of Michael Jordan and Magic Johnson, and he's 17, and we're going to take him first, and he better not let us down. Um, but but same thing with Wemby. You know, Wemby has had a lot of hype, and I got really into Wemby this spring, and I am, a, I am, exci- I am really excited about watching his career unfold, and I also understand the hype I just also think it's worth contextualizing how different this is than hype 20, certainly 40 years ago. It's different to me. It has a wider range of uncertainty. Even to your point, like if you're saying, oh, Ben, am am I talking about the hype machine or am I talking about how good the player is as a player when he comes into the league? The hype machine with social media and finding a guy that could be like a true unicorn 
who can play like this at his size. You know, what's the comparison people have made? Like the supersized Kevin Durant. I mean, that's a, vi- that's a video game, right? That gets people excited. That gets people out of their seat. When you see this 7'5 dude crossing over people, scraping the floor with the crossover like Allen Iverson and hitting a fadeaway 26-3, falling out of bounds, uh, 26'3, that, that gets you really excited, right? Oh, absolutely. I'm just imagining like the idealized Thon McCurr, <laughs> who I was like very convinced was the future of the Bucks for I, a while. I really like how I I really like how I set that up and you were like staring off into sp- I'm like, that gets you hyped up, Cody, and you're like <laughs> Sorry, I'm sorry, I was thinking about I was thinking about <laughs> Thon Maker, Thon Thon now I don't know how to say his name. Yeah, I think there was that story that it's it's pronounced McCurr. Yeah. It's one of those names that when you say it like uh, correctly you it's like gif and jif like when you say it, it's like it's actually jif and they just sound like a like an idiot no but. it's like it's like jock lawndale is what it's yeah. like that's that's what it's, it's like uh, so yeah you, sure I, i'm excited but like you said like these players don't exist until they're the league uh so sure everyone can have their excitement with Wembenyama. uh let, let's see what popovich does with him with the spurs next year not saying i'm like skeptical but i want to see him in the league do you have any other thoughts on this before we uh, wrap up our first off-season podcast in a brisk one hour and seven minutes? <laughs> is this is this just what it's going to be? Is this uh, what's it, a harbinger of what's to come for Ooh. this off-season? Ooh, I think I think we're going to add that to our our words to look up today. <laughs> um. Yeah, you know what they need to do? Because I think I referenced this on a previous podcast. Uh, I had a couple DVDs. Yeah, I definitely referenced this. It was like preps to pros. It was some of these high school guys that were, were playing in high school. And it was literally just like a DVD set, you know, for, for you know, Gen Zers that don't know what that is. It was like a CD that you put into a player that played videos. You didn't have to, like, stream it. We need more of those so I can watch full-blown games of some of these guys. Because see, like, the John Wall highlights and the Derrick Rose highlights and everyone, the Seventh Wood highlights, and everyone's like, oh, my God, this is the best prospect ever. I want to see the full game. I want to sit down and, and uh, crush some of that tape during the summer. I'm glad you brought this up because I am not a fan of the highlight culture. N- no, not a fan no. of it because it, it. I actually realized it confuses me as an as an analyst. It confuses me because it's it's sort of you have no idea if it's representative of the player. Like you could put together a highlight reel of the 400th best player in the NBA and make him look better than a Hall of Famer if you just cut the highlight reel right. And you're like, look at this. He can make a fadeaway three. He can make an elbow turnaround jumper. Look at this crossover. Look at this block. The reason why that's so important with prospects is maybe to your point, Cody, you want to get in, you want to get in there and get your hands dirty and feel like, okay, how does he play in these situations? What's his decision making? What's the context of his team? How does he respond to the flow of the game? Um, Yeah, he's got this jumper, but I'm noticing he misses it a lot. Let me look up how, oh, okay, only shoots 25% from the mid range. So maybe it's not a good idea that he takes this jumper. It's, It's really the kind of thing that if you only consume highlights of a player, you're going to have a hard time differentiating Steph Curry from Dewan Wagner. And that, to me, is, is the issue with it. So I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, do, you, do you have any more gems to share with us before we, we get out of here? A little Righteous Gemstones action. 
Yeah, a little, little bit LeBron James ending on this, but going back to the 2003 All-American game, the thing that stood out to me, and somebody that doesn't do like draft stuff, but I remember watching that, again, on my DVD. I wasn't like sitting up late one night watching it on ESPN, but the way that he just like kind of went out there with all the other best high school prospects, I don't remember exactly. I think Kendrick Perkins, Luol Dang might have been out there, uh, Charlie Villanueva, I know that because he threw a no-look lob to him from the half court, but his just like calmness that he went out there. The fact that he wasn't pushing the subject too much, that he was throwing around some of these nice passes to get everyone involved. That was the kind of thing where I'm watching and I'm like, this dude's out here with the best and he's just like Neo moving in slow motion around everyone else. Is this what you do at night? Do you just do you just throw on some old LeBron high school film and uh, and get cozy? You put, no, th- put a robe was- on and get a sandwich? <laughs> This this is like prior to like like living in the in the in the sticks, Cody, when I didn't have high speed internet and like all you could watch was just your DVD collection. So I'd be like, all right, I don't have dish, I don't have high speed internet. I'm just gonna throw on this LeBron All American game for the seven hundredth time and watch it again, and then go to the gym and try and replicate this half court lob, even though at eighth grade there's no one I can throw a half court lob to. If you want to support this show, check out patreon.com slash thinking basketball. Uh, that's where you can get that statistical database that Cody referenced. We're, we'll update it a little bit in this. In this, now that we're in the off season, we have to bring in the fold in the historical numbers from uh, this season. We'll we'll get that updated. Patreon.com slash thinking basketball. We all we also have our very fun live monthly Q and A. We also have have merchandise now. Cody, we have apparel on the website you can get that i probably should have mentioned that at some other point you can get you can get the apparel um patreon.com but that's shop.patreon no that's shop.thinkingbasketball.net what is going on (laughs) we have we have to end this show i can't even remember the websites that that we use uh to to get information um that's it thanks for listening all the way through and uh as always i hope you're having a great day 